Have you ever uh, stopped and just taken a minute to think about all of the various threats that uh, are around you every day? All the various threats to your own personal safety, be it, and, and here, I'm not trying to make anybody anxious by saying all these things, but be it hopping in a car and driving down the road, or going into a grocery store with lots of people, or attending an event, getting on an airplane, going for a walk, the weather. There's all kinds of various threats around us. There's countless of them. However, not all of them are credible threats. Just the other day, um, I was hanging out with Finley, my oldest daughter, and Lennon, um, my younger daughter. Finley's five, Lennon's three. And Finley told me that she had a scary dream. And we usually don't make our kids hash out their nightmares. And so she said, Dad, I really want to tell you about this, this scary dream I had. He said, no, that's OK. You don't have to do that. She said, no, really, I really want to tell you. Now that, that's all right. She's like, Dad, please, I, I want to tell you. OK, whatever, tell me. She said, OK, so you, Mommy, me, Lennon, and Ezra, our son, were all running away from a T-Rex. And I was holding Lennon's hand. And because she is slower than me, she fell. And the T-Rex ate her. And Lennon's right there. <laughs> so I'm like, well, that's very kind of you to say. <laughs> and I said, OK, well, thankfully, it was only a dream. And Lennon says, Daddy, Daddy, I had a happy dream. And I'm like, OK, great. Like, this isn't a nightmare. Happy dream. Tell me about your happy dream. And smiling big, the first two words that come out of her mouth were, sissy fell. <laughs> like, wow, that was savage. <laughs> but look, we, we laugh at that because we recognize that unless John Hammond and Jurassic Park become a real thing, a T-Rex chasing my kids is just not a credible threat. And as we jump into the text today, what we see is that despite the Lord proving himself to be a credible threat to Egypt and to Pharaoh, Pharaoh continues to treat God like a nightmare that he's going to wake up from. Pharaoh, however, is soon going to find out that this is no nightmare, that this is a very real reality. And the reality that we're supposed to face as we look at this text, we're supposed to come face to face with is that because God's judgment is sure, because it is a credible threat, because God's judgment is sure, we need a substitute. Because God's judgment is sure, we need a substitute. And so just to give you some context, if you're joining us this morning, you're not sure where we've been, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And the theme of this book is just God making himself known. He's continued time and time again to make himself known. He's made himself known to Moses, to Aaron, to Israel, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and he will continue to make himself known to the rest of the nations. In the last two weeks, we covered the first nine plagues where God is making himself known to Pharaoh, that all of these other false gods that Pharaoh and Egypt have placed their trust in, God is superior to them, that they cannot save them. And each plague, one through nine, was an attack against the false gods of Egypt. And even today's plague is an attack against their idea that Pharaoh is some form of deity. Now, each plague also grew increasingly severe. 
And so two weeks ago, we looked at plagues one through three. Last week, we looked at plagues four through nine. And this week, we're going to look at the final plague against Egypt. So if you would, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to go from 11 all the way through chapter 12, verse 28. So Exodus 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 28. And if you're looking at your outline there on your bulletin, I think this text is broken up into two ways. We see the first point being a promised judgment. A promised judgment. And then from chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, we see a necessary substitute. A promised judgment and a necessary substitute. So we are going to read Exodus chapter 11, and we'll read all of chapter 11, and then we'll jump into chapter 12 as we move forward in the sermon. And if you're looking for that in one of the blue provided Bibles, that should be starting on page 53. As we often say, if you don't own a Bible, that blue provided one, uh, just please take that home. That's yours. So beginning in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. This is God's perfect and inerrant word. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from, there, from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. God, as we look at this text, we pray that we would not be like Pharaoh, that we would not hear what your word says and ignore it. Give us insight and Holy Spirit, give us understanding. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, we just start, this is now chapter 11, and what we have to do to understand what's going on here is just look back a couple verses. So if you would, look at, look at chapter 10, uh, verses 28 and 29, where Moses had previously gone to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't like what he had to say, and so Pharaoh tells him to get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And so Moses says, as you say, I will not see your face again. So this right here is right as Moses is leaving the presence of Pharaoh. So when you watch a movie and you see uh, like a heated argument going on, and then you kind of see the scene slow down, and then maybe we're given an insight into a flashback conversation or something, everything slows down to give us some more insight into something else that happened. 
before moving on to the scene? That's what's happening right here, is we're given some more insight into a previous conversation that the Lord had with Moses. He told him in verse 1 that there will be one more plague and that Pharaoh will not um, obey, but after this plague, he will let the people go. It wasn't a matter of if. It never was a matter of if with the Lord. It was a matter of when. And now, God tells them exactly when the people are going to be let go. And it's after this final plague. So thus, by, by fulfilling this, he's fulfilling an early promise that he made to Moses when he first appeared to him in the burning bush. You don't have to turn there, but Exodus 3, when God appeared to him, he said to, to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And then in verses 2 through 3, we notice what else God keeps his word on. So again, in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, God said to Moses, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 11, we see God fulfilling that very thing as well. The Israelites went from being, like, being treated like slaves for roughly 400 years to now being treated like royalty. The Egyptians are just giving them gold and silver, whatever they ask for. Take it. He says they're going to give it to you on your way out. And look, it's not because of anything that the Israelites have done. But it's because the Lord fought on their behalf. Yahweh had done this for them. And look, all of this, it's not just what's happening here, but this whole story was predicted hundreds of years before that. So God's fulfilling his promise to Moses, right? he's going to deliver Egypt out. He's also fulfilling his promise to Moses that they're going to go out with gold and jewelry and, and they're going to plunder the Egyptians. But he's fulfilling a promise from hundreds of years ago that he made with Abram before he ever became Abraham. Genesis 15, starting verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So in this parenthesis, before Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh, in this parenthesis where we're given insight into this previous conversation, we see that God is keeping his promises, as he always does. And so now jumping out of that parenthesis, on his way out of Pharaoh's presence, we see that Moses tells him one last thing. He warns Pharaoh one last time of God's judgment. He says, every firstborn land of Egypt is going to die. From the greatest to the least, Pharaoh, your son's not going to be spared just because you sit on the throne. It's going to be every firstborn, even the firstborn of cattle. There's going to be grief in Egypt, unlike any other kind of grief that Egypt has ever experienced. But notice this. Israel, where Israel is, is going to be totally calm. Not even a dog is going to growl. And look, as somebody who has a dog that barks and growls at even the slightest sound, that had to have been an extremely peaceful night. But look, God is further establishing the distinction between his people and those who reject him. 
those who, who put their hope and trust in him, and those who continue to put their hope and trust in other things. But after this plague, as you see in verse 8, Egypt is going to say, get out. Go. Enough is enough. Yet despite all the evidence, despite all the evidence that Yahweh is a credible threat to Pharaoh and to Egypt, Pharaoh still won't listen to the Lord because his heart is hardened. And so Israel is currently still in slavery. But their freedom was coming. Why? Because God keeps his promises. He's promised to deliver Israel by judging Egypt. He kept his word with the other nine plagues. He's going to keep his word with this one too. God's judgment was sure then, and it's sure now. And look, friends, the distinction that God makes between those who receive him and those who reject him is just as real today as it was then. His judgment only ever falls upon those who reject him. But for all who realize their inability to save themselves, for all who realize the inability of other things to save them from God, for those who in their desperation call on the Lord for saving, God graciously saves them. He spares them. And he does this every single time. Look, we, the problem is we're all prone to think about God like an extinct dinosaur. That at one point in history, he was, he was this dangerous threat and he's very real and credible, but not so much today. So rather than humbly asking him for mercy, we end up seeking comfort everywhere else. We go to other things, job, family, various different comforts, friends. I would encourage you, don't make that mistake. If you're not a Christian today, then like Pharaoh, you're only going to be given so many opportunities to turn to the Lord. Eventually those opportunities are going to be exhausted and you're no longer going to have an opportunity to say, I was wrong, I want to put my trust in you. That time will be gone. So I encourage you, don't wait too long. An anonymous, um, anonymous author wrote this. He said, yesterday is gone. Forget it. Tomorrow never comes. Don't wait for it. Today is here. Use it. Friends, use today to ensure that you're right with God. His judgment is sure. We can trust that. It is sure. It's coming. Which means, unless we want that judgment to fall upon us, we need a substitute. And the good news is, God has provided that necessary substitute. Look with me in, in chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, we'll look at the first 13 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first, day, or the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts in the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. 
anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So in these first six verses of chapter 12, we see God communicating what's necessary to avoid judgment. There needs to be a one-year-old male lamb without any spot or blemish. Now, a question that might pop up is, is why a spotless lamb? Why one without blemish? Well, because a spotless lamb has no reason to be put to death. There's nothing wrong with it. It's done nothing to deserve death. It would be blameless, so to speak. Thus, making it a true sacrifice. There's a sick lamb or a lamb that can't walk and the shepherd always has to pick it up. I mean, then, then it would make a little bit more sense why the shepherd might say, hey, this one's kind of a liability. But this is a spotless lamb. There is nothing wrong with it. Thus, making it a true sacrifice. In fact, this theme goes through later on when uh, we're reading about sacrifices again in Deuteronomy 17. In verse 1 of that chapter, God says that you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which there is a blemish, any defect, whatever. For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. And so look, these, these Israelites were given instructions on what kind of sacrifice was necessary. And they were also given instructions as to what to do with that sacrifice after it's been sacrificed. Look at verse 7. It says, to Take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So they take some of the, that blood, put it on the doorpost, put it on the, the top part of the door. And that was to serve as a vivid image. When God sent the destroyer through Egypt, this was to serve as a vivid image that judgment has already come to this house. Blood has already been shed. And so you can pass on to the next one. In verse 8, we're told then what they're to eat. And look, friends, this is a very symbolic meal. They're to eat the sacrificed lamb, which signified that there was, in fact, judgment. So the, the lamb signified, hey, there, this meal, the fact that you guys are being saved is because of a lamb being sacrificed in your place. There was judgment done. Then the unleavened bread signified at least two things. Signified purification or cleansing, because we've talked about this before, but the way that bread was previously made, leavened bread, was they would take some of the yeast from the old batch and put it in with the new one. And then it would come up, and then when they wanted to make bread again with leaven, they would take some from the old batch and put it in with the new one. And so unleavened bread is saying, hey, we're done with that, with the past. There's a clean slate now. This is unleavened bread. This is a new beginning. But also, it signified the haste in which they'd be leaving Egypt. Bread with leaven just took longer to rise. And so, therefore, what, by eating unleavened bread, it was saying, hey, you don't have time to wait for that. Because at any given moment, you're going to have to leave Egypt. And we're told that in, in verse 39 of chapter 12, where we read that they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. So the sacrificed lamb signifies judgment. The unleavened bread signifies a new start, cleanliness, and the haste in which they have to leave Egypt. But then the bitter herbs 
are there to signify the, their bitter time under slavery in Egypt. They're to remember what their time in Egypt was like. Then they're given further instructions. They're told how to eat it. They're given what, what they're supposed to wear, what they're supposed to have in their hand when they eat it. So we're told in verse 11 that their belt is to be fastened, their shoes are on, walking stick in hand, and they're to eat quickly. Why? Because God's people need to be ready at any given moment to follow him. And their deliverance is going to come at a moment's notice. His judgment's coming quickly, and it's coming that night. And it's going to inflict every house not covered by the blood of the Lamb. He's saying, be ready. I'm going to deliver you, but you need to be ready to follow me at any given moment. And look, this was essentially Israel's Independence Day. They're being freed from the bondage of Egypt. And so it's a big deal. And God wants them to remember it. He doesn't want them to soon forget. And so he gives them a memorial. If we look at verses 14 through 20, we don't need to go through all of that. But essentially what, what's happening there is God is ensuring that they remember what he has done for them. Significant events in a nation oftentimes lead to a holiday. We think about our own Independence Day. Think of Memorial Day and Veterans Day. We want to remember those who have fought for our freedom. Think of Thanksgiving. The fact that we made it through those early winters. And look, the same thing's happening here. God points out that every year, in the first month, from the 14th day to the 21st day, they're to observe this feast of unleavened bread, where no leaven is supposed to be eaten all week. Which was to help Israel be reminded every single year of how God had delivered them from their Egyptian bondage. Think about that meal, what they're to wear, how they're to eat it. They're supposed to eat this meal quickly, to be reminded of how quickly God pulled them out of Egypt. To be reminded, not only to look back at how God delivered them, but also to, to have their future hope of a future Messiah to be painted by the way God delivered them in the past. So it's like they're putting on spectacles and saying, okay, that's how God did it in the past. This is probably how God's going to do something similar in the future, that God would fight for us. It's going to be his work, not ours. It's going to be through the blood of a lamb. And that God's judgment will pass over us because of a spotless substitute. But then we're told about that lamb. So look at verses 21 through 28. So earlier in chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, God is telling Moses what he's to communicate to the Israelites. Now, Moses is communicating to them everything that God had said. So he gathers the elders there, and we see in verse 21, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. And he explains further the things that God had already told him. And then, look at verse 26. He says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this, sac- by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So God is pointing out that by observing the Passover meal, at least two things were accomplished. So one, it helped Israel look back 
and remember what it was that God saved them from. He delivered them from bondage. But two, it also gave Israel an opportunity to evangelize their own children. Their children would be asking, what, what do we do this for? Why is it that we eat this meal with these elements, and why do we eat it as fast as we do? Why is dad dressed like he's running out of the house? I, I don't understand. What, what's going on here? And it was to remind them that God's judgment is, in fact, terrifying. It's to remind them what God did to deliver them. It's also to remind them that he mercifully provided a substitute. And that all who placed their faith in that substitute that night were spared. But friends, God's judgment brings death. But all who trust in the substitute that he provides are spared. A perfect, spotless sacrifice. Think about this. A perfect, spotless sacrifice being necessary to satisfy God's judgment should give us all great pause. Should make us a little bit concerned if you think about it. Now why? It's because we're not perfect. We're not spotless. God's judgment is sure, which means his judgment will fall on one of two places. Either one, on a perfect sacrifice. And because it's perfect, God's judgment will be satisfied. Or, it'll fall on you. And you're imperfect. And so if God's judgment falls on you as someone who is imperfect, then you will never be able to satisfy it. And you'll spend all of eternity paying for your sin. In what God calls hell. So look, before you make a trip to your local sheep farm to try to find a, a lamb that's spotless without any blemish, I want us to consider what God tells us in his word. First, that he has sent a lamb. He has spent a, sent a perfect sacrifice, a lamb for his people. In John 1.29, we read that John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise God. He has sent a lamb to take away the sin of the world. But then in addition to that, that lamb has cleansed his people. We're a new batch. Therefore, we should live like it. We should live like we're unleavened, like we've had a new start. Like we are new creatures in Christ. Paul, Paul says this very thing to the Corinthian church when he's frustrated that they're tolerating some sin. And for those who were here when we were going over uh, the First Corinthians series, you remember some of this. But the Corinthian church was tolerating some sexual sin that God said you should not be tolerating. And Paul tells the Corinthian church, he said, look, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He's saying, look, you've been washed from your sin. That old leaven, it's gone. Live like it. And Paul then says in the same verse, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Phil Riken commenting on this in, in his uh, commentary on Exodus says that two things are supposed to be happening here with the, with the Passover and then with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. First with the Passover. He says Passover is about getting saved. It reminds us that we have been delivered from death by a perfect substitute whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins. Then he says the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us what God wants us to do once we've been saved. 
and that is to live a sanctified or unleavened life, becoming more and more free from sin. So Christian, the Passover meal was there to help Israel remember at least two things. One, what they were saved to. They were saved uh, to go and serve the Lord freely. They no longer are under Pharaoh's bondage. They're no longer under the slavery at Egypt, so they're freed from that. Two, go serve the Lord. Then they're also told, we're also told that this, uh, what's happening here at the Passover is to remind them of what they were saved from. Bitterness in Egypt. Bitter slavery. And say, look, we, we need to remember both those things as well because we're just prone to forget. We need to remember what we have been saved to, that we're free to serve God rather than sin. That we should be growing in our love and obedience to God. That's just part of what it is to to be a Christian, to follow Christ. If he says, go this way, I'm going this way. I'm following him. But we should also be reminded of what we've been saved from. The bitter slavery of sin. Friends, we're, we're less likely to return to being slaves of sin if we take time to remember what God has delivered us from. It doesn't say that we have to, to live in that, but to be reminded of the slavery that we had in sin and that that was not, that was not a, a joyful place. That God has saved us to joyfully serve him. Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If we, if we remember our sin fondly, it's going to be difficult to walk faithfully with Christ. Friends, remember the bitterness of sin. And look, because God's judgment is sure, we need a substitute. And the Lord has kindly provided one. He provided a spotless lamb for Israel to take them out of the bondage from Egypt. And he's given you and me today a spotless lamb in Christ to take us from the bondage of sin. What Christ did on the cross, by going to the cross and having his blood shed, to pay for the sin of all those who repent and believe on him, is the only way in which we get to walk in freedom. There is no other way for our sin to be removed. We sang nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Friends, you cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn your way out of God's judgment. Even if you were to stop right now, any sin that you're engaged in, even from this moment forward until the day you die, you never sin again. Which just isn't going to happen, but let's just say it is. You still have past sin that needs to be paid for. And God is perfectly just. He cannot dwell with sin. And so your past sin is going to be paid for. And because you are imperfect, you will never be able to satisfy that sin. And so you need a perfect sacrifice. And God has sent it in Christ. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Michael referenced the song that we had sung, All Praise to Him. And that lyric... is so powerful. I'm going to read it again. It says, All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin, and shame. Who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. 
There is one all-sufficient sacrifice, and his name is Jesus Christ. Don't place your trust in anything or anyone but Christ for your salvation. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is our perfect substitute. He is our spotless sacrifice. So a question for all of us is, is your life like the doorposts of Israel's homes covered by the blood of the Lamb? If so, then remember your substitute and serve him faithfully. Remember, God saved them, but then he gave them laws to follow. So by following those laws, it indicates how they were saved. And so if you have been saved, if you are marked by the blood of Christ, then no, remember your substitute, but also remember that you are called to serve him faithfully. But if not, if your life is not covered by the blood of the Lamb, I would encourage you to put your trust in the substitute before it's too late. Pharaoh continued to put off and put off and put off, repenting and trusting in Yahweh. Trusted in himself, he trusted in the other gods of Egypt, trusted in their resources, and all of them failed. We are only given so much time. I would encourage you, trust in Christ. Put your trust in the perfect substitute. If you have any questions about what that looks like, talk to another Christian here. Talk to me. We would love to talk to you about that. Praise God for giving us a perfect sacrifice. Praise God for delivering us from our bondage. May the Spirit help us to walk faithfully in light of that. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise. We are thankful that you, in your kindness, have provided a lamb. Lord, we are imperfect. We can never satisfy your judgment. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son to be the perfect sacrifice that we need to be made right with you. You are so kind. You are merciful. You are gracious. You are loving. And we don't deserve any of that, but we thank you for it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.